0: Well, good evening. a Very warm welcome to you. And a dark and wet night. It's great that you're able to make it out tonight as we gather together uh, to worship the Lord. As we come uh, to this evening service, we're thinking about uh, one Thessalonians, uh, Jesus coming back, uh, one Thessalonians chapter four, and, uh, and in that we're just reminded. I think often we do forget, don't we, that Jesus is coming back, uh, and so we we want to be reminded of that um, this evening as we look at that as Jeff brings. The Word to us, and we, as we think about that um, about Jesus' return, we also have that, that hope, and we have that hope because of his resurrection. Uh, it speaks of that in 1 Corinthians 15 and it says uh, if, uh, if only we only live for this life if we only hope in this life and the dead are not raised, then we are of most people to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. It's a wonderful promise of jesus going before us going ahead of us into heaven and then returning for his people that we would be that he is the first fruits and that we are brought up into that harvest the harvest of the resurrection the thing that we look forward to as believers so let us with that in mind let us come to the lord now in prayer father god we thank you for the hope that we have in christ we thank you for the resurrection uh, the The fact that he has conquered death and that we will be part of that harvest on the last day brought before you we thank you lord for the the truth and the reality of jesus coming back Uh, we pray that you would help us to to fix our minds on that this evening as we come to your word Uh, may you transform us and change us more into the image of your son in jesus name we pray amen
1: Let's meet together in prayer. Praise my soul, the King of heaven, to his feet thy tribute bring. Ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven, who like me his praise should sing. Father, we thank you that you are worthy of our praise. We thank you, Lord, that we can echo the words of that hymn, because what you've done for us on the cross, because of Jesus, because of your unfailing love towards us. We bless you and praise you because we are ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven. Father, we bring before you the things we have said and done, or the things that we have left undone, words and actions that have grieved your Holy Spirit this past week. Lord, we want to say that we are sorry and ask for your forgiveness. Knowing that if we, if we confess our sins, you are faithful to forgive and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let's just take a moment now to do that in our own hearts. On this Remembrance Sunday, we give thanks for all those who have given their lives for our peace and our freedom, and remember those still serving in areas of conflict around the world. We see on our television screens the desolation of lives homes, communities, torn apart, Lord, particularly by the situation in Israel and Gaza, and in the ongoing war in Ukraine. Lord, in your mercy, would you please bring about peace and reconciliation, and an end to all hostilities. Father God, we thank you for the encouragements, Lord, that uh, we've heard from the FIEC conference, Father, we thank you for what you are doing in different churches around this nation. Father, we thank you for those that are wanting to be baptised. We thank you for the encouragements we see in our own church. Father, we do particularly want to pray for Naomi, for Grant, for Ashley, for Michael and for Marta. Father, we thank you that they are willing to take this step of obedience towards you, Lord, in being baptised. And Father, we pray for them this week. We pray a protection upon them. Father, when we pray that as they prepare their hearts to give their testimonies next week, Lord, that you would be with them, that you will be their strength. Father, we do want to thank you again, Lord, for the ongoing encouragements in the Support Recovery Program. Father, we thank you, Lord, that we are seeing, Lord, lives changed by Christ. Father, we thank you for their stories. We thank you for all those involved in the ministry. And, Father, we thank you, Father, that you have... Provided us an opportunity, Lord, to use this building that you've given us. Father, to open our doors, Lord, to those so desperately in need. Father, we we thank you for that ongoing work, Lord, and we we just look forward, Lord, to many more encouragements that, that you will do. And, Father, I pray that we would be faithful in prayer. Father, we thank you for the forthcoming opportunities, Lord, for our craft evenings, Father, and Father, for the, the forthcoming memorial service, Lord, in December, Lord, we pray for good conversations, Lord, and that we will have opportunities to draw alongside those who are seeking, those who are lonely, and those who are grieving. Father, Lord, as we see your hand at work in our church, this our, your fellowship here, Father, we are aware, Lord, that we have an enemy that would prowl round, seeking those he would devour. Lord, may we be faithful in daily putting on the full armour of God. Father, that we may stand firm in our faith. Lord, we bring before you our elders and our pastors. Father, we thank you for each and every one of them. We thank you for how they faithfully serve you, how they faithfully serve us, how they shepherd us. Father, we ask for your wisdom and your discernment, Father, as they seek what is your good and perfect will for us as a fellowship at this time. We pray too for Colin and Vicky, Father. Lord, you know, Father, the time has come, Lord, for you to be moving Colin on. And we pray, Lord, for your uh, discernment for him and for Vicky, Lord, where you are, where you may be leading them to. I pray that we will be faithful, Lord, in bringing them um, before you, Lord, in our prayers. Lord, may they have your perfect peace, Lord, in all that they do. Father, we lift those before you who are unwell, Lord, for those that are waiting results, and for those that have recently been bereaved. We thank you, Lord, that you are the good shepherd of the sheep who walks beside us in all seasons of our lives. We especially bring Samuel and Catherine before you. Following Catherine's recent diagnosis, we pray too for their families. Father God, as they take their anguish to the cross, as hopes and dreams seemingly lie in tatters, would you please be their portion? We ask for you to comfort and strengthen them for them to hold on to your promises that are written in your word. Lord, for them to cling to you, the rock of their salvation. And Father, may they feel comforted and carried in our prayers. Father, we confess at times like this, Lord, we don't understand. Father, but we know that you are sovereign. We know that you are the Prince of Peace, the Good Shepherd of the Sheep that you are at all times, Emmanuel, God with us. Father, we thank you for our time this evening. Father, we um, thank you for Jeff. Father, as he comes to bring your word to us this evening, Lord, I pray that you would give us ears to listen. You would give us hearts, Lord, that are ready, Lord, and willing to receive. That, Father, we may go out from this changed, strengthened in the knowledge of your word to us today. Father, we lift these things before you. We thank you, Lord, that you hear our prayers. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.
2: Readings from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 18. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death
3: Thank you, Sarah. Uh, Thank you, Nigel, for putting together those songs. Um, And I'm glad there's a glass of water up here, because after all that singing, I'm sorry, you guys, if you want to drink, you'll have to go to the kitchen. (laughs) It's been a long day today, hasn't it? Um, Really good to just to be together. Thank you, Liz, for such an amazing meal and all your helpers as well. That's just really great. Just have that fellowship together. And... um, yeah, no, it's been good. And starting off down at the war memorial just to remember the dead. Um, and actually, it's quite um, quite fitting that we come to this passage today. and We remember those people who have given their lives um, for, for our country and for the free world. Um, and all of those people who were grieving, you know, when their loved ones didn't come home. And really, that's what this passage is actually all about. You know, Paul is addressing the grief of the Thessalonians. What happens when we die? Um, It's a question that perhaps every single person on the earth has ever asked themselves, and many cultures around the world have come to various conclusions, and uh, no doubt you'll know many of them. Um, First century AD was no different. Um, The Greco-Roman culture also had a variety of beliefs about what actually happened at death. One of the most popular beliefs was immortalised by a poet called Catullus. Catullus was a popular Roman poet, born in 84 BC, and lived actually for only 33 years. He wrote a love song called An Ode to Lesbia. It became one of the most famous poems, and in it he has a line that sums up a portion of the Greco-Roman thinking about death. He wrote, Suns may set and rise again, but we, when our brief light goes down, must sleep an endless night. They believe that when you die, you would go into some sort of a coma and never, ever wake up from it. Another Roman poet by the name of Theocritus wrote, Hopes are among the living the dead are without any hope. Incidentally, our word uh, for cemetery comes from the Greek koimeterion, which is the word for sleeping place. Although the term sleep is used by Paul referring to death, um, in our reading, see if I can, Ah, oh, there we are, great. It works. Um, that, no, hang on a minute, that's not quite the right one. Um, although the term sleep is used by Paul, referring to death in our reading, 1 Thessalonians 4.13 says, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. He probably only does so um, because it's common parlance. It's what people understand, he's, what he's talking about. He's using it as a euphemism. We know from his words in 2 Corinthians 5, 6 and 8, where it says, Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we're away from the Lord. For we live by faith and not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would be, prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. And again, in Philippians 1, he says, I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. In Paul's mind, there doesn't appear to be any in-between state. We are either conscious in our bodies or in the presence of the Lord. The Thessalonians were grieving because some of them had died. Their grief was compounded um, because they'd come to the conclusion that those who had died, remember, many of them were um, believed in these, um, in uh, once you die, you, you stay dead forever. Um, their grief was compounded because they come to the conclusion that those who had died had missed out on their salvation and that they would never see them again. Also, because the church believed that Christ's return was going to be literally soon, even Paul seems to have thought that, they thought they, it meant in their life in their lifetime. That expectation, coupled with the teaching in Hebrews 9, where it says um, He will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation for those who are waiting for Him appears to be what they believed according to Paul's word. So Paul had obviously taught about the second coming while he was there in Thessalonica. But there were false teachers also who were doing so. The latter actually compounding fear and confusion and grief. So in this section of his letter, he addresses the issue of death, the death of the believers and the gospel that he is teaching. So before we see what Paul says, let's get a bird's-eye view of the church there in Thessalonica in order to understand the background and setting of the church and how the people feel about things. When people are hurting over an issue, it's always good to get a bird's-eye view, to get the whole picture. This group of believers were the harvest from Paul's second missionary journey. As was his custom, he taught in the synagogue, On three consecutive Sabbaths, proclaiming that Jesus was the Messiah or King and therefore the fulfillment of the whole history of Israel. Although there was a synagogue in the city where Jews could worship, a large number who attended were also Gentiles. As Paul taught in Acts 17 verse 4. Can you read that? Oh, yes. Um, Says some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out from the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the other believers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here And Jason has welcomed them into his house. They're all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. This is a situation into which the church was born. Persecution, literally only a few months before Paul wrote this letter. So what's going on here? What is going on? Why are the people so upset? Well, the people were living in a time of peace and prosperity known as the Pax Romana. It lasted from 27 BC to 180 AD. And the Jewish leaders were kowtowing to Rome in order to keep the peace and so prosper along with the Roman Empire. Anyone who opposed the king or Caesar was considered a traitor and executed and any uprising was crushed without mercy. So here is Paul teaching in a very prominent city that the king of the Jews came to bring peace, was put to death on a Roman cross, having been accused of treason, was raised to life on the third day, ascended into heaven after 40 days, and is going to return again and in power and soon and will destroy his enemies and rescue his people. That message was not well received among those who sheltered in the might of Rome. So persecution from day one. We have no idea what persecution means. We need to thank God every day that we are not under persecution. And Paul acknowledges their suffering a little earlier in his letter, where he says, For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus You suffered from your own people the same things that those churches suffered from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. Now added to their persecution, they were in grief over loved ones who had died and as they saw it, had missed out on this promised salvation. They were grieving, confused, persecuted and very upset. So, how does Paul treat this condition? How does Paul help them in this situation? Paul's heart goes out to them. He says, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. Brothers and sisters, It's one of Paul's terms of endearment. He knows people are hurting. He wants to come gently alongside them. He goes straight to their heart. He appeals to their heart. He appeals to their emotions and to their feelings. He knows how they feel. He himself has been through it himself. He doesn't deny how they're feeling, but gently comes alongside them with pastoral sympathy and empathy and compassion. We do well to learn from him here. There's much suffering and grief in life. But like everything else in the kingdom of God, there is no waste. All of our suffering and pain is put to good use. To both change us for good and comfort others for their relief. Paul knows what it is to suffer grief through persecution and rejection. And he doesn't waste it. He uses it to apply as a balm to the grief-stricken in compassion and empathy. And he does it using just two words, brothers and sisters. It's not what he says, it's the way he says it. In a day when there are no emojis, they knew they could feel and sense Paul's heart for them. He connects with them at that level. Notice Paul's approach as a teacher. He's not just a pastor, but he's a teacher. So he wants them to be informed. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. We live in an age of IT, information technology, With trillions of bits of information at our fingertips. But none of it, absolutely none of it matters as much as this bit of information that we're about to receive. For we believe that Jesus died, he rose again, and we believe that he will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep. There's not one bit of information in this whole world As important as this. This is the whole gospel. Recently, in our home groups, you may remember we were challenged. I think Colin challenged us to um, just in one sentence to say what we believe when if somebody was to ask us, "Well, what do you believe?" And to be frank, we struggled to kind of put it into one sentence. But I think Paul got it here, and it's worth kind of going back to that. For we believe that Jesus died. And rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus. Those who have fallen asleep in him. I think that's about as good as it gets. Paul knows what we, that what we think and what we believe. Profoundly affects our lives in every way. As a teacher Paul is a master builder. Building people's lives to make them strong. Paul is literally informing or inwardly forming and shaping their minds with the truth he's connected with them through their emotions and that gives him permission to be able to speak to them the gospel and tell them the truth as pastors care for god's people they soon realize the importance of teaching the truth in order to build the church notice too paul's application of this information he's not just saying it because he knows it but he's applying it pastorally to comfort and to bring relief and a perspective in their suffering and grief to bring them hope in the midst of their troubles. Paul says that when Christ returns, he will bring with them the very ones they are grieving for. On October the 7th, 1,400 Israelis were slaughtered And 200 were taken hostage by Hamas. Relatives of the hostages are desperate for news about them. The best bit of news they could receive is that they are still alive. So too the Thessalonians. They were desperate to know what had happened to those who had died. Paul assures them that they are with the Lord and they will come with him on his return. They are safe because they are with the Lord. That was the best bit of news, the best bit of information that they could have received. You can only imagine the relief that they felt, the moment and the impact that it had on their lives, a huge burden lifted by the gospel. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep. Notice the comprehensive and compact nature of what Paul says. All three elements of the gospel are present. The cross, the empty grave, and the resurrection. The cross without the empty tomb doesn't make sense. The empty tomb without the cross doesn't make sense. The return of Christ... Christ without the cross and the tomb does not make sense. All three, however, make sense. And this is what we believe and this is what our hope is. This is what we proclaim to the world and this is how we comfort the suffering and the grieving. You know, sometimes when I'm sitting here, sitting there and and looking this way and I see the cross and that's fantastic to have the cross there and it's all important and totally central But where's the empty tomb? Where's the return of Christ? You know, this is only part of the gospel, isn't it? This is the first part. This is where it all happens from. But there's a hope. There's something coming. There's more to it than only the cross. Grief is a God-given emotion to enable us to express the most profound and painful events in our lives. Grief is, in fact, an expression of love. The shortest verse in the Bible is Jesus wept. And the next verse explains, then Jesus, the Jews said, see how he loved him. Jesus was deeply moved with grief when he came to the tomb of his friend Lazarus. But at the entrance of the tomb, Jesus held out the hope of the resurrection it says, Jesus said to her, that's Martha, I am the resurrection and the life, the one who believes in me, even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? These are the very words, by the way, that we use um, by the graveside of those who have departed. Peter also held out the hope of the resurrection in the face of suffering. 1 Peter 1 5 and 6 says, and bought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. Suffering and grief is inevitable in this life. Nothing lasts forever. Not our health, our jobs, our relationships, security, our cars, energy, international security, you name it, everything gets broken, worn down, dies, and we suffer grief. The world copes with these losses by being optimistic and thinking positively. The world hopes for a change in fortune or a cure or better invention, a change of government or an end to war. Being optimistic and thinking positively are good attitudes to have. Hoping for an end to war is good and we all enjoy new inventions that make life easier and medical advances that help bring cures. But ultimately, suffering and grief will continue despite our attempts to eliminate them. We're in an age now when the end of the world is front-page news. Campaigns for nuclear disarmament and climate change are no longer the the, the realm of science fiction, but have become very real dangers to life on Earth. Hope is dwindling. We are fighting a losing battle, the world believes that one day life on planet Earth will cease and all of its beauty and this world will return to stardust. But what does the Bible say? Romans 8.21 says that creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the, glo- into the freedom and glory of of the children of God. The second coming of Christ and the gathering of the church in the resurrection, being united with him forever, is the glorious hope of the Christian and indeed the hope of the whole creation. No amount of inventions or interventions will save it. We might ask the question why the resurrection of the body? Why doesn't God just create a new body, like an angelic body? Why is he resurrecting the body? Sometimes we think perhaps that we just die and we go to heaven and that's it, the end of it. But it's so much more to to it than that. Tim Keller, let me quote Tim Keller on this. He says, the resurrection was indeed a miraculous display of God's power. But we should not see it as a suspension of the natural order of the world. Rather, it's the beginning of a restoration of the natural order of the world. The world as God intended it to be. The resurrection means not merely that Christians have a hope for the future, but that they have a hope that comes from the future. The Bible's startling message is that when Jesus rose, he brought the future kingdom of God into the present at the beginning of the bible we read that god said everything was good everything that god had made was good it was as he had intended it was perfect and lacked nothing it was very good as we know things went wrong in the garden and then from that point on the bible's narrative was restoration The resurrection of our bodies, then, is the final piece of the restoration narrative. Everything from then on, the whole natural order, becomes eternal without end. The new bodies that we receive, the continuation of this life on earth, but a preparation for eternity. This life is but a pinprick at the beginning of eternity. A very small but very painful time. But we have this hope. Sure and certain hope of restoration. Restoration of our relationship with God. Restoration of our relationships with each other. Restoration of our natural world and even the heavens. So that once again it becomes very good. So what do we do? with this information? Paul's answer is simple. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Encourage one another. When we're suffering, when we're in grief, when we're in loss, when we don't know what the future holds, when the future looks bleak, encourage one another with these words. Empathize, sympathize, have compassion on one another and point people to Jesus. Show people what he has done. Encourage one another with these words. Soon there will be no more crying. There will be no more pain. And the old order of things will pass away. Praise God.
0: Let me close just with verse 14. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Amen.